From the official radio network of the PRSA, WebmasterRadio.fm presents exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference. Welcome to the PRSA 2009 International Conference in San Diego. Todd Buckholtz is the former White House Director of Economic Policy, an accomplished, best-selling author, and an award-winning Harvard University economics professor. He has written articles for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Reader's Digest, and is a frequent commentator on ABC News, PBS, and CBS. He will share his views on today's unpredictable roller coaster global economy and what it means for business and your business sector. Please join me in welcoming Todd Buckholtz. Thank you, Marisa, for that very kind introduction. Uh, You were kind enough to read everything my mother had written down, which is always nice. Uh, Boy, and and you you revealed that I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, so many people from New Jersey. Frank Sinatra from New Jersey. Uh, Bruce Springsteen from New Jersey. Meryl Streep. George Washington. I know some of you are thinking, no, he wasn't from New Jersey, he was from Virginia. No, it turned out that George Washington was from New Jersey. In fact, he cut down that cherry tree in New Jersey. And his father turned to him and said, George, did you cut down that tree? Uh, And George said, Father, uh, uh, yes, I did. I cannot tell a lie. Uh, And uh, his father said, well, then, George, you better pack your bags and move to Virginia, because if you can't tell a lie, you don't have a future in New Jersey politics. (laughs) Uh, look, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to welcome you here to what is now my hometown of, of San Diego. Uh, of course, it would be more pleasurable to welcome you to an economy that was rip-roaring with strength instead of one that seems to be meandering and stumbling along. And my challenge this morning is to explain what is going on in the economy, how we got into this mess, how we're going to get out of this mess, and what comes next. Um, I brought with me some, uh, some, some visual aids, some slides here. In fact, I brought with you, I brought my governor. There's my governor. Now, I know you saw the mayor. That was great. But here's the governor. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger on the, on the left there. Uh, and there he is filling up his GM Hummer. All right? Now, because he's married to a Kennedy, it's a hybrid Hummer. Uh, you know, so Arnie's getting upwards of six, seven miles to gallon on that baby. Uh, in a symbol of how this world is turned upside down, I've got another slide there. There's Hot Wheels cars, right? Mattel Hot Wheels cars. And I have in my hand one of my old Hot Wheels cars. Now, what is a Hot Wheels car and a GM car to scale? Maybe it's, I don't know, 100 to 1, 200 to 1? Do you realize today, in a symbol of how this world economy is turned upside down before our eyes, The market capitalization, the value of all the shares of General Motors are worth less than all the shares of the Hot Wheels cars. Yeah, Hot Wheels could buy GM. They don't want to. (laughs) Are you laughing? You're an American taxpayer. You bought GM. And do we have Canadians here? Canada, you bought GM, right? Uh, this world is just turning upside down before, before our eyes. Uh, speed is of the essence. Right? The very moment Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve Board 
uh, turns on his microphone, or uh, my old friend Tim Geithner at the Treasury Department, the moment they turn on their microphones, I hold on to my wallet, right? Because I know within a second, the slightest statement they make can rob me of what I've got. Maybe it can make me some money. Uh, Geithner and I go way back. In fact, I, I knew Tim before he made the money he forgot to pay his taxes on. Um, but we now, as public relations executives, as business people, we now need to react more quickly than, than ever before. Uh, shock waves of change in the world economy. I've got some images up here and you're thinking, wait a minute, Todd is supposed to be the economist. Uh, where are the statistics? Where are the graphs? I'll have some of that. I'll have some graphs and statistics. But this is economics for us. This is our modern economy. This is what we need to understand. Upper left, there's the Berlin Wall, right? 1989, almost precisely 20 years ago. The Berlin Wall comes crashing down, the March of Freedom. President Reagan had demanded Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, and the wall came down. I was serving in the White House in 89 when the wall came down. I could talk to you about the politics of Berlin and Prague, but uh, Marisa didn't ask me to come up here to talk about the politics of Berlin. I'm supposed to talk about this economy and how we're all going to handle and survive and try to thrive in this economy. There's economics. That's not just a political photo. That's an economics photo. For every square foot of Berlin Wall cement that crumbled to the ground as dust, hundreds and hundreds of workers who'd been trapped behind that wall, trapped under communism, were suddenly free. Free to do what? Free to travel, free to start a newspaper free to vote, but also free to compete. Who do they compete against? Against you, against me, right? Against somebody writing software code up the street in La Jolla or assembling textiles in North Carolina. One reason why the economic models of the Federal Reserve Board and Harvard and all these august institutions haven't done any good in 20 years is when you introduce hundreds of millions of workers into the worldwide workforce, and if you add the opening of India and China, that's billions. It pushes down labor rates, creates a new kind of hyper-competition in this world economy. Uh, look at the chopsticks, right? America's middle class, Europe's middle class are in a pincer movement. Think about two years, uh, a year and a half ago or so, Senator Barack Obama and Senator Hillary Clinton campaigning in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio. They looked at middle-class voters. The middle-class voters says, say, we are being squeezed. Prong number one, we can't get higher wages. Why can't you get higher wages? Because we're competing against a billion new people that didn't seem to have existed 10 years ago. Number two, remember this was during the time of $4 a gallon gasoline, rice riots in Thailand and Vietnam, tortilla riots in Mexico. Middle-class voters looked at the politicians and said, when we go to the supermarket to buy stuff for dinner, everything we take off the shopping cart costs more. Right? These were two prongs squeezing the middle class. Right? Then, of course, we've had the incredible wave of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, which have a kind of destabilizing psychological effect. To me, the, the mega wave got kicked off about 10 years ago. Remember how stunned we were when we found out that Daimler, Benz, and Chrysler, two companies that had made tanks that fought each other in World War II were merging? Most of us here, we grew up with the idea of the big three automakers in Detroit, the big three in Detroit. What does that phrase mean anymore? Huh? You might as well talk to Grandpa about Studebaker and Packard 
to talk about the big three. There's a story about the Daimler executive in Stuttgart. When that merger was announced back in 98, he called together his staff in a big room like this, and he had handouts and leaflets and explaining the merger. Finally, a guy in the back raises his hand, says, boss, uh, okay, I understand who I report to, what my division does. What I don't understand is in German, how do we pronounce Daimler, Benz, Chrysler, Plymouth? He stumbled over the word Plymouth. Well, the Daimler executive at the podium, he couldn't say Plymouth either. Finally, he throws up his hands and says, it's pronounced Daimler-Benz. The Chrysler is silent. It's uh, pretty much the way that one worked out. Uh, and then, of course, it all got split up. And look, here in San Diego, how many of you may be visiting SeaWorld during your time here? Right? Well, people in San Diego are worried, right? Because uh, SeaWorld was owned by Anheuser-Busch, just became a Belgian beer company, Right? And we don't know whether the Belgian beer company likes Shamu the whale or not. and what they're, Maybe they're going to fill up the tank with something other than seawater. We'll see. But these three combinations, the mega increase in workers around the world, right? the pincer movement, the M&A wave has shaken confidence uh, in the world economy. Uh, the world map is being rewritten before our eyes. This, I, took this, I have a daughter in high school who was studying world history. I took this from one of her textbooks. Silk routes, 700 years ago, Marco Polo, trade between Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. What were they trading? They were trading figs, uh, dates, prunes, breakfast for old people. That's basically what they were trading back then. <laughs> These silk routes are back, but now it's petrochemicals, it's financial flows, right? What is this map going to look like five or ten years from now? I've got another map for you, by the way. Raise your hand and keep it up, uh, please, if you're from one of the following areas. All right, California. All right, good, keep them up. Florida. All right, Scottsdale, Arizona. All right, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Keep them up. Now, I'm from California, so I'm going to slip behind this curtain here for a second. Those who don't have your hands up, I want you to pick up the nearest club and beat the hell out of anybody with his hands raised. California, Florida, Scottsdale, and Las Vegas imperiled the entire world's financial system, right? With the incredible excess speculation in housing uh, and the irresponsible lending and the like. Uh, I trace it to what? Lack of skin in the game. Lack of skin in the game. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but how did it start? You start with Mr. and Mrs. I deserve four bedrooms and a jacuzzi. <laughs> Even though I never saved a dollar in my life, I deserve four bedrooms and a jacuzzi. Uh, they go to the, mor the mortgage broker. He only wants to get the mortgage done and then go play golf the rest of the day. He's got no skin in the game, right? Then the local bank issued the mortgage and they didn't even ask for a down payment. They didn't even ask for a tax return. I've asked bankers here in California, in San Diego, how is it that you gave mortgages to people without even asking to look at their tax return? The banker said, oh, we didn't want to offend our clients, embarrass our clients, embarrass our clients. Mr. and Mrs., I deserve four bedrooms and a jacuzzi. This is a couple that would willingly go on the Jerry Springer show and wrestle each other to the ground on national television. They'd be embarrassed to have to show their 1040. Uh, and then, of course, it got worse and the securitization and Wall Street and so on and so forth. And, and of course, uh, we all have had to pay the price. And now we have the threat of a backlash against capitalism, a backlash against globalization, a backlash against free trade. You saw President Obama recently announced a 35% tariff on tires made in China. Uh, we've got retaliation, 
uh, I've got a couple of instances here, but let me, a little bit of economic history. The Great Depression of the 1930s started as a stock market crash and then a recession, but then it devolved into what we call the Great Depression. There were three terrible policy mistakes that turned a recession into the Great Depression. Policy mistake number one, the Federal Reserve Board looked around in the 1930s and said, boy, money is tight. Well, we better not spend any of ours, and they didn't, and they let 40% of the banks fail. Policy mistake number two, Congress and President Hoover and President Franklin Roosevelt said, boy, the economy's in terrible condition. This would be a good time to raise taxes. <laughs> so they raised taxes on rich people, on poor people, on companies. Third policy mistake, Congress looked around at a terrible economy and said, must be those damn foreigners. And they raised tariffs across the board. It led to retaliation across the board. Now, we in the U.S. passed this bogus stimulus package last January. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. One of the pernicious elements to it was something called a Buy America provision. And I'll give you one example of how dumb this thing was. Camp Pendleton is just up the coast between San Diego and Orange County. Camp Pendleton needed a new irrigation system. So they lay the pipes, they, they put in the new system, they turn on the spigots, the faucets, all works fine. Then some inspector comes along. He looks at what they've done and said, oh, no, no, this isn't going to work. Look where, you, look, look where you bought these pipes. So the Marines and the engineers are looking at it and say, oh, my gosh, did we buy it from, I don't know, North Korea or Iran or some axis of evil country? Oh, they dig them up, and what do they find? Made in, get ready for this, our mortal enemy, made in Canada. They dug up the pipes, put them on the back of trucks, and sent them back up north where they came from. Right? We risk having this economy roll over if we permit these sorts of provisions and retaliation around the world uh, to continue. All right, um, I want to draw a lesson from uh, this book, uh, Lasting Lessons from the Corner Office, which uh, Marisa was kind enough uh, to mention. Uh, a lesson of how to conduct ourselves in a time of economic peril, an economic crisis. I'm going to talk about a fellow named Amadeo Giannini. How many of you are familiar with a guy named Giannini? Right. Those from San Francisco probably are. He's less well-known outside. Let me tell you a story quickly. There he is, cover of Time magazine. But let's scroll back. He's born 1870 in San Jose, California, the son of Italian immigrants. His father runs an orchard. The boy works on the orchard. One day, the kid is six, seven years old. He's making rounds with his father. Sees his father get in an argument with a disgruntled farm worker. The boy stands there as a witness against the tree, as the farm worker draws a gun from his waistband and shoots the father on the spot, the father dies. The widow moves the family into the city of San Francisco. Into the city of San Francisco. Now, young Amadeo Giannini, he's a smart kid. He's a whiz at math, but he won't sit still in the classroom. Right, like this guy leaving right now can't sit still in the classroom. Right? Today, you know, today they'd say he's got ADD and they'd give him Ritalin. Right? By the way, this ADD thing, you ever notice uh, we give it an abbreviation because we don't have the time or the patience to focus on the whole syndrome. We've got to move on. ADD. That guy comes back in, give him some Ritalin. Um, all right. What is the, so, so, so what does the kid do? He quits school. He hangs out 
Let me ask you, when you go to San Francisco as a tourist, shout out some of the tourist destinations you go to, please. Alcatraz? Front row, watch this guy. <laughs> Fisherman, there we go, thank you. Fisherman's Wharf, the kid falls in love with Fisherman's Wharf. Why, there were no jugglers 120 years ago. There was no uh, aquarium. The kid falls in love with commerce. He falls in love with the fruit and vegetable and fish market. Quit school, makes a fortune as a broker of fruits and vegetables as a teenager, and then decides, I'm gonna start a financial institution for working class people. Because working class people couldn't get a loan back then. J.P. Morgan was there. He'd lend money to the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Goulds. If you didn't need the money, J.P. was there for you. <laughs> but the working class, forget about it. So young Amadeo starts a little bank. He calls it the Bank of Italy. He finds an Irish friend uh, who's an establishment banker, gives this guy an honorary Italian name. His name was Joe Fagan. Amadeo gives him an honorary Italian name and says, hey, Giacomo, come with me. So Giacomo and Amadeo start the Bank of Italy. All right, scroll ahead. It's Wednesday, April 18th, 1906. The San Francisco earthquake strikes. The city reduced to rubble. Gas mains break. Fires everywhere. On Saturday, following that Wednesday earthquake, the leading bankers of the day gather together in the last standing conference room of San Francisco and bang a gavel on the following resolution. We, the bankers of San Francisco, do hereby declare that on this Saturday, following the Wednesday disaster, we are closed for six months. Hey, we can't touch the vaults. How are we going to, does this sound familiar? How are we going to price collateral in an illiquid market? Amadeo Giannini, with his little Bank of Italy, steps forward and says, you're closed six months? No. I open tomorrow. Tomorrow. Sunday. <laughs> For a Catholic in San Francisco in 1906. How does he do it? This building was rubble. Well, they, they, they hid money, cash in sacks. They were afraid of looters, so they hid it behind his fireplace at his home. They bring it out to the wharf, and they begin doling out credit. You've seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, right? Who, who directed that movie? Frank Capra, Paisan, a friend of Giannini, who said he was inspired to create the Jimmy Stewart character by the courage and leadership that Giannini showed during the earthquake and bank runs of the Great Depression. Now, what difference did courage and leadership make? If you Google image San Francisco one year after that earthquake and see how it was rebuilt with greater splendor than ever before within one year, and sadly, compare that to New Orleans today, now years after Hurricane Katrina, you'll see the difference courage and leadership make. Now, now, now I'm not the motivational speaker. I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not the guy who's supposed to get you all to stand up and hug each other. I don't want to be here if you're all going to be standing up and hugging each other, right? But Giannini tells us how to run our businesses in a time of economic disaster. And one of his fundamental notions was always know as much about the other guy's business, the guy on the other side of the table, as he does himself. Because that allows you, of course, to provide better service, but it also allows you to innovate. Giannini uh, learns about the dairy industry, and he reinvents the, name, the word collateral because he realizes next year's milk is a form of collateral. Look, uh, Snow White. In 1936, when Walt Disney wanted to do Snow White, well, actually, I didn't mean he wanted to do Snow White. That 
Please, I've got three daughters and uh, tickets to Disney World coming up. Uh, no one would lend him the money. But Giannini had the following insight, which is so obvious to all, all of us today, but wasn't then. He said, the film negative, the cells, the drawings are a form of collateral. It's so obvious to us today, you go to any art gallery in the world and pay a fortune for the drawings of Disney. But Giannini didn't lend money to Disney until he learned more about the motion picture industry than anybody, anybody else. Now, what's that got to do with our crisis? I was in Arizona meeting with FDIC officials, the banking regulators. They told me that in the year 2005, the bankers of San Francisco reported that 200,000 people had moved into the state. Turned out that was wrong. Only 80,000 had moved into the state. How could they think 200,000 and it was only 80,000? Well, they saw carpenters with buckets and nails. They saw pipe fitters. Right? The bankers never asked, how many of these homes are being built on spec? And it turned out most of them were. Right? When you have a situation, well, first of all, let me tell you, as an economist, speculation actually plays a positive role in the overall economy. But by God, you better know whether you're speculating or not. You shouldn't go to Las Vegas and play the slot machines and think you're at an ATM machine instead. <laughs> but this, this, is, this is what happened. This is one of the lessons of Giannini, right? To know the other guy's business. Oh, by the way, that little Bank of Italy, do you know what it's called today? The Bank of America. And now you know the rest of the story, right? All right. Um, by the way, there's never any excuse for bad service. I was meeting my wife at the theater in New York. I just had a couple minutes to grab something to eat. So I, I went, ducked into the pizza hut. I got to the front of the line. Young woman, big doe eyes, looks at me apologetically and says, I, I, I'm sorry, we, we ran out of pizza. <laughs> yeah, like, so what are you now, hut? All right, uh, now, now, now that you've allowed me to go through this more thematic approach, let's talk about what exactly is going on in the economy, right? Last time we fell into a recession in 2000, 2001, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal. We could beat our foes, F, Federal Reserve Board, O, Oil, or OPEC, E, the Euro. This was back in 2000, 2001. Alan Greenspan jacked up short-term rates to 6.5%. That, why? He was afraid of inflation. Why was he afraid of inflation? He didn't know about the Berlin Wall. He didn't know about the chopsticks. He didn't realize what now we realize, what was going on in the economy. All right, then OPEC tightened the noose and doubled the price of oil. That wouldn't have been so bad. But at the same time, the euro had been introduced and promptly lost 40% of its value. Companies from Dell to McDonald's said, we can't make any money on exports. FOE were three powerful pumps on the brakes of our economy. We went into a tailspin. Where do FOE stand today? F, the Federal Reserve Board. Ben Bernanke has rewritten everything. 0% interest rates? The Federal Reserve Board used to only lend money to its own member banks. Now they'll lend money to state banks, any bank. It used to be they would only accept their own paper as collateral. Now they'll take mortgage debt, consumer debt. You're, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm actually headed to Washington uh, tomorrow. I, I want to bring my own Monopoly game, right? And I'm going to bring a stack of that Art Linkletter money. I'm going to go up to Ben Bernanke's office on Constitution Avenue, and I bet you he's going to give me Ben Franklin's in exchange for Art Linkletters. And you know what? Bernanke has been spot on right since last November. 
to stomp on the monetary accelerator, to print money, to drive down interest rates, and to eject, inject liquidity into the economy. Now, he might have been slow-minded and slow-footed until last January, but since then he has been correctly aggressive. And that is the principal reason why the economy is beginning to turn around. Okay, uh, the price of oil is moving up again, but it's nothing like the $150 a barrel that we had last year that sent us into the recession. And now the euro is very strong and the dollar is weak, which means American exporters are having a field day. Caterpillar, John Deere, and all the others couldn't be happier with this weak dollar. Of course, if you're a tourist now and you try to buy dinner in Rome, forget about it. But for tourists, I mean, for uh, exporters, it's a good thing. All right, some people are worried. You'll, You'll hear this, we're going back to the 70s, we're going back to the 70s, right? Just to remind you of the 70s, or those who might have been too young to remember the 70s, there's Jimmy Carter on the upper left, right? There's a singing group, the village people on the lower left there. The 70s was the era of stagflation, a terrible recession simultaneous with raging inflation. A lot of people today are worried, raging inflation we're going to have. I don't think we're going to have the raging inflation. If you remember the 70s or you Google stagflation, you always come up with the following phrase, wage price spiral. Remember that one? Wage price, at the end of the 1970s, the United Mine Workers signed a three-year agreement, 10% wage increase each year, three years in a row. Outside of Derek Jeter and a couple other ball players, I don't know anyone who's getting a wage price spiral anytime soon. Right? So I don't think we're going to end up with this raging inflation story that some people are worried about. Now, it's funny. Remember that bumper sticker we used to see? When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping? <laughs> well, that stopped last Christmas, didn't it? And we've reallocated where we spend money. Warren Buffett said, uh, you never know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. Right? Well, the tide went out. And we saw how many skinny dippers there were in this economy. These two lines here, the one that fell apart, that was Saks Fifth Avenue. Saks fell down to Third Avenue, 2nd Avenue, it dumped into the East River. <laughs> the one that went up, Walmart did great. You know why. You, you and I, we had all these affluent friends who were strutting around showing us the Rolex and the Lexus and the timeshare and the con. Those friends of ours who thought they were so affluent, they're now standing in line at Walmart for the 10-pack of underwear. Oh, they'd rather be at Costco, but they can't afford the membership card anymore, right? So we've obviously reallocated uh, where we're spending money. The job market is the last thing to improve when an economy begins to improve. And we saw 10.2% unemployment rate. The job market is still cracked. Yeah, each month isn't quite as bad as the month before, but we're not creating new jobs. I have to tell you, I don't think Washington, D.C. is doing anything to help this job market. If you've got a small business or a medium-sized business, and you're thinking, well, things are starting to pick up, maybe I'll hire someone now. But then you wait, if I hire an extra person, does that mean some new health care plan is going to force me to cough up 8% of my revenues? Or if I buy a new piece of equipment, will some cap-and-trade program to reduce carbon emissions lead to my having to pay extra tax? Congress's inability to decide and deliberations are paralyzing the job market, not creating new jobs. When I look at Congress, I get, uh, as uh, Will Rogers said about Congress, he said, I get the same feeling I get when I see a toddler picking up a hammer. All right? 
so the, what, is, what is, though, leading the economy to begin to recover? Because GDP was actually positive, 3.5% in the third quarter. It'll be positive in the fourth quarter. We're, many of you might be familiar with the name John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics. Uh, I actually uh, was a fellow at Cambridge University uh, last spring, and I was back there lecturing a week or so ago. He was the famous Cambridge economist who, who had a prescription for how to get out of a depression or a recession. He said, you just have the government buy up everything. Just have the government buy things. He was rebelling against his teacher, a fuddy-duddy named Arthur Cecil Pigou. We are not getting a Keynesian recovery. We are getting a Pigouvian recovery. And I'll quickly tell you what that's about. Pigou said, you get out of a recession by having the central bank print money, which is what Ben Bernanke is doing, which they didn't do in the Great Depression. And number two, Pagu said, falling prices after some period of time will begin to give people a feeling of greater buying power. Falling prices, things on sale, will begin to give people a feeling of more buying power. And that's exactly what's taking place this fall. 10% of Americans are losing their jobs. But the 90% that are keeping them are realizing something. Everything is on sale. Everything, I don't care if you want shoes, you want a hotel room, right? Every, everything is on sale. And consumers who've been hunkered down in bomb shelters for 12 months are beginning to come out and they want to be able to take advantage of that. And we see it in statistics where you see actually inflation-adjusted disposable income and real earnings are actually moved higher, right? The used vehicle value index has moved higher. Right? Consumers are beginning to come out and realizing now is the time to take advantage of the sale. Carnival Cruise Lines, this ship is actually docked a couple blocks from here. Right? Carnival just announced it was revising upward its expectations uh, for the winter season. So we were beginning to get this kind of Paguvian recovery, which has nothing to do with what Congress was bungling about last January under the title of a stimulus plan. Right? Um, in fact, China has a better stimulus plan than the U.S. Think about China. China is the answer to almost any question these days. Where's the world's tallest man? China. Where's the world's shortest woman? China. Uh, really? I mean, you look it up in Guinness. Um, where, uh, where's the best, world's best Chinese food? All right, not that one, but everything else. Right? China has a better stimulus plan than the U.S. The U.S. Congress. $787 billion stimulus plan. You know all that talk about shovel-ready projects? Do you know what percentage is going to infrastructure, to bridges and tunnels and highways? Six and a half percent. Shovel I mean, those shovels are like teaspoons in the hands of Yao Ming. Right, shovel. China, China, $600 billion stimulus plan, all going to infrastructure. The Chinese recovery has led the U.S. recovery. Now, wh why does China have a better stimulus plan? It, is it because they're smarter? No. Uh, is it because they're nicer? No. It's because their politicians have different incentives than our politicians do. Our politicians just want to get reelected, of course, and dole out favors here and there. Their politicians, the Communist Party in Beijing, if they do not get economic growth going and creating jobs, they are going to be hanged in Tiananmen Square. Because of China's dastardly one-child policy, which has led to female infanticide, tonight in China, there are 37 million young men who cannot get a date. Yeah. If you got 37 million young, frustrated, ranty, horny guys who can't get a date, 
you better get him a job. <laughs> and that's what China's stimulus plan uh, is doing. I spoke to John, John Chambers from Cisco. Uh, orders are up from China. United Technologies, which makes Otis elevators. China is actually doing more to create economic growth, and China has to. Because of that one-child policy, China's demographics, China needs to grow pedal to the metal for the next 15 years, because after that, they won't have enough young workers to support retirees. China is going to look like the old country, Florida. <laughs> Everyone in line for the early bird dim sum special. Um, uh, okay. A f uh, final, one of my final themes here, and we'll have to have some time for questions uh, and answers as well. Um, in the long term, what's going to be most important for the, for the U.S. economy and the world economy? We are in, forget about Dow points and NASDAQ and, and mortgage points, we are in a worldwide race for IQ points. Whatever city, town, country, company harnesses intelligence is going to prosper most in the 21st century. Right? During the 90s, we created 20 million net new jobs in the U.S., uh, but we lost jobs on the docks, timber workers, farmers, sewers, typesetters, gain jobs, engineering, science, architects, legal assistants, financial services. Our young people did brilliantly, our, and I'm speaking obviously to, to people from the U.S. at the moment, did brilliantly in the Beijing Olympics, right? Did brilliant, and, and if you can include Dana Torres, the swimmer, our middle-aged people did brilliantly in the Beijing Olympics, right? But when you look at international math science Olympiads, our kids, we are the Jamaican bobsled team of education. It's true. <laughs> when I was a kid, we were taught, we're gonna go metric, gonna learn metric. Everyone's gonna go metric, gonna learn metric. Who learned metric? I didn't learn metric. The drug dealers, they learn metric, I guess. I mean, I don't know what a kilo bag is. And come after, if, I, if I get it wrong, they come after me with a 22. I, these are not things I know. Right? But this is what's most, this is what's most important. Uh, and um, uh, it also affects this whole debate you hear about running out of natural resources. You know, Thomas Friedman had a book about, uh, you know, the world is flat, the world is then flat and crowded and hot. Other people are talking about peak oil. I don't believe in peak oil. I don't, this whole, uh, the, the, there's like this nonsensical view, if I may pick this up for a second, that the world is not just flat, but it's hollow. People are, oh, there's no more uh, gas, there's no more oil, there's no more food, the earth has failed us, there's nothing under the crust that will support our world pop baloney. Forget peak oil and all, it's peak people. If we've got the learning, the brain power, the intellectual capacity, then we can create the resources that we need. You need more oil and gas? Fine. We better produce more petroleum engineers. The number's fallen 90% since 1981. You need more food to feed India and China? You better produce more agricultural scientists, right? But that number has fallen or stayed stable for the last 20 years. Right? The answer to so many of these questions is our intellectual capability in our school systems, not simply the stuff that's on the ground. Okay, um, I have thrown a lot at you uh, this morning. The FOE, the interest rates, we are enjoying, well, I wouldn't say enjoying, we are experiencing an economic recovery. 
We're experiencing economic recovery actually more quickly and sooner than most any economist expected nine months ago. But it is a painful economic recovery because the job market is very, very slow to repair itself. But it will eventually begin repairing itself. And 2010 will be a decent year. And if we can avoid putting obstacles in front of businesses, it can be an even better year. Let me close this way, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers. Um, there was a great movie with Orson Welles called The Third Man. Came out, it took place after World War II in Vienna, Austria. Nobody knew what would happen to Austria after World War II. Chaos and kidnappings. The Orson Welles character says, in Italy, under the Borgias, there was warfare, murder, bloodshed, terror, but they produced Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. He said, Switzerland, 500 years of peace and quiet, and what did they come up with? The cuckoo clock, right? My point is, in this maelstrom, in this perfect storm, right, this perfect storm made up of bitter political infighting, terrible financial meltdowns, right, fears of terrorism, shootings on America's military bases, Right? Pirates in Somalia and all the rest we can discuss and fear. This now is still the opportunity for prosperity. This now is still the opportunity for innovation. This now is still our chance to make a better life for our children, our neighbors, our community, our respective countries. So I thank PRSA so much for inviting me here this morning. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you for listening to exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference, only on webmasterradio.fm. This podcast is presented by the Public Relations Society of America and webmasterradio.fm. It may not be reproduced, reused, or rebroadcasted without prior consent of the Public Relations Society of America.